What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And today we've got a special crossover episode, this time with a brand new podcast called Future Tense. The host of the show is Abi Reg, and um, he's the head of the Diplomat Risk Intelligence Unit that's part of the Diplomat Magazine, right? The Diplomat.com money asia policy website i was a columnist there for a while back in the day and our conversation and the podcast itself it's a little different and in a good way like i think this is right up everybody's alley or it should be it's sort of zooming out from current events we do talk about afghanistan withdrawal and all that stuff but we're taking the angle of thinking about analytic trade craft methods scenario-based planning Right. In my take, there was a huge error in judgment, not in intelligence analysis that led to these bad assessments uh, about the consequences of, of withdrawal. What else? What else? Scenario based planning, net assessment, fucking, I don't know, analytic tradecraft generally. It's a good discussion. I think you're going to see and you're going to love. So good over there. Sign up for it whenever you uh, get a chance. Catch you next time. Peace. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Future Tense, Diplomat Risk Intelligence's fortnightly podcast on international security and global trends. To know more about DRI offerings and services, visit dri.thediplomat.com. My name is Abhi Reg. I'm the DRI's Director of Research and your host. As all of our listeners are undoubtedly aware, the takeover of Kabul by the Taliban on Sunday, August 15th has led many to question about assessments provided by the Pentagon and the U.S. intelligence community. Recall that over the course of the last few months, the United States had constantly revisited the length of time Afghan forces and the Ghani government will be able to stave off a Taliban takeover. Estimates that have come down from 18 months to 72 hours, just in the span of a few months. At the end, the Taliban basically marched into Kabul and then onto the presidential palace with little resistance. The Afghan debacle in the minds of many had demonstrated the limitations of numerical comparison of forces. On July 8th, President Joe Biden said, and I quote, the Afghan troops have 300,000 well-equipped, as well-equipped as any army in the world, and an air force against something like 75,000 Taliban. The president had said that the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan was not, quote, inevitable. All of this leaves us wondering more conceptual questions. What was behind this colossal misreading of the situation in Afghanistan? Was it analytical blindsight or political compulsions? To what extent should the security analysis community take a long, hard look at how it comes to intelligence estimates? Is the art of intelligence doomed to remain imprecise? What new tools must the intelligence community bring in to buttress its existing analytical methods? To discuss all this and more, we have Dr. Van Jackson join us today in future tense. One of the leading global experts on Asian security and US foreign and defense policy, Van is a professor, think tanker, prolific writer, and host of an extremely successful podcast. When I think of avant-garde security analysts, Van's name comes to my mind immediately. Welcome to Future Tense, Van. Thanks for having me here. It's exciting. Let me jump in uh, uh, just straight in and ask you something. What is the future of net assessment, especially after we have seen published research using that method that gave the Taliban only, and I quote, a slight edge over the Afghan forces when comparing the two? Yeah, so I'm not I'm not super 
hot on net assessment. The one of the problems is that there's no there's no standard to it. It's kind of the creation. It's a mixture of methods. It is holistic, and in that sense, it's it's good. But it's because it's basically reducible to like the art of you know analyzing the balance of forces or the correlation of forces or the balance of power, but without any sort of clear benchmark for how you do that beyond some um, heuristics and being open to mixed methods, it leaves you in a place where like you're fixated on competition, right? You're uh, ideally suiting a long-term competition against a monolithic great power, right? So already when you're trying to apply net assessment as a practice to non-state actors, you're kind of in iffy territory given where this practice came from, which is studying the Soviet Union and doctrine, like the level of doctrine and organization in a freaking communist country, right? So like a very different template than what we would expect to uh, analyze the Taliban. But just in general, there's more to say about you know, net assessment and the, the China rivalry stuff too. But um, because there's not a standard to net assessment, um, I, I, I take it as a grain of salt when you make net assessment based analyses or try to draw conclusions based on that approach to an adversary. Because like you said in the opening, the correlation of forces is not, not only is it not everything, but um, it's easy to misjudge because it's a it's ultimately a very highly contextualized read of a situation. And it's not about numbers and bean counting at all. It's about how you expect the numbers and bean counting to interact with the other, right? And so like how you expect the strategy to meet up with the enemy's strategy. And that's tough, you know, like that requires a lot of judgment. And I think net assessment is just not maybe the right frame for that. You know, digging a little deeper into this question, uh, you know, the, the study of correlation of forces, as you said, imperfect as, as it is, because there, there, there are no set methods and standards, um, uh, also suffers from the problem that if you seek parsimony in, in your assessment, you're necessarily omitting a lot of variables, right? So in, in this specific yeah, instance, yeah. Uh, the things like corruption in the Afghan forces, um, in the Ghani government Huge. in general, was 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 not not factored in. So, do you really think we can do net assessment without factoring all these local micro level considerations? Because if you factor all of this in, you're throwing parsimony out. Yeah, it's a, the thing is, net assessment does not buy you out of exercising judgment. And so, as an analytical approach or as an analytical method to put all of your hopes into net assessment or to outsource your judgment to net assessment is gravely mistaken. Um, Caitlin Talmadge is a sort of normal political scientist who's written about the factors that go into military effectiveness. As far as I know, the U.S. net assessment didn't of, of the Taliban did not cross-reference what she has more or less proven as our crucial factors, right? Like civ civil military cohesion, right? The degree of corruption in a society. So like the fact that you have a military that is attached to a kleptocracy inherently undermines your firepower. Like dramatically, as we saw, there was no actual fight to be had. 
and so it's like if you're if if net assessment were to reach out and grab somebody like Caitlin Talmadge's insights, that could be a very powerful thing. But then what's doing the analytical work there? It's her insights. It's not the net assessment. Right. And the fact that there's no standards meant that they didn't grab her insights. So ultimately, you, you have to be sort of well read you have to be able to have like a kind of contextual intelligence you have to know what the best kind of knowledge or information practices are are out there in the market so to speak but ultimately you cannot escape judgment and so like the foreign policy practitioners world is decision making under uncertainty and net assessment doesn't allow you to escape the challenges of decision making under uncertainty you know coming back to the issue of intel assessment of Afghanistan where in the intelligence cycle do you think things went wrong? Was it collections or analysis or tasking? Because, you know, we have had folks rightly asking the obvious, which is that the Pentagon, having worked with the Afghan forces for a long while now, must have known problems with morale, with pay, with corruption, etc. All of which seems to have contributed to what, as, as you also pointed out, it looked like a pushover where Afghan forces basically didn't put up a fight. Yeah. Well, so... American intelligence culture it exists within American uh, strategic culture or American national security culture. And kleptocracy is a huge, huge blind spot in American foreign policy and its statecraft in the way that it thinks about security and insecurity in the world. I mean, America willingly feeds, fuels kleptocracy in parts of the world. It's done this for decades. It's considered a cost of doing business, right? It's something that we live with and we, we chalk it up to like, uh, you know, principled amorality or something because it's about the balance of power or about, you know, ends justifying the means or something like that. But there's an actual real world consequence to this because it means that you discount the strategic consequences of these things that exist in your blind spot, these things that you take for granted. So I don't think it's a failure so much, or who knows, you know, open source, I'm standing here as an outsider right now. I don't think it's a so much an intelligence tasking failure. It's not a shortage of resources. The analytical process, the five-step process or whatever, I'm sure was followed to a T. Um, I think it has to do with the, the biases and omissions of judgment, the frames of analysis that analysts use, and the analysts know who the customer is. And the customer is a milieu, a network of decision makers whom they know have a blind spot on kleptocracy. And the intelligence analysts probably share that blind spot. So they can say, oh yeah, we know the Karzai government is you know, hyper-corrupt. They don't follow the reasoning that what that then means is that the firepower capacity of its military is basically zero. You know, like they don't they don't make draw that conclusion. That's right. But you have had advisors to to uh, the U.S. military in the past who have flagged uh, corruption as as an international security threat. I mean, Sarah mm-hmm. Chase's name comes mm-hmm. to my mind immediately, right? But you know, let's let's kind of move on and talk about futures and scenario planning a bit. Of course, and and we have heard the Pentagon spokesperson recently describe the U.S. military as a planning organization. I'm paraphrasing him a little bit. Does the Pentagon do scenario planning well? Where are its blind spots? 
Uh, it's hard to say as an outsider, even though, of course, at one point in my career, I was doing precisely that kind of, of function in the Pentagon. And so like, I can't speak out of school too much on this, but just in general, um, and with the Afghanistan withdrawal decision in particular, what I know is that these, what I, what I would refer to as like tools of analytical tradecraft, like that's how I teach it at Victoria University because I have a course on this stuff. These tools are used uh, very much in, in like an ad hoc self-serving way. And in fact, there's nothing wrong with that because tools like uh, alternative futures analysis, scenario-based uh, decision-making and planning, it's better than nothing, right? It's, it's just informed or heuristically good ways of generating um, useful data or analytical insights. Uh, it's, and it's up to the decision maker to then make the most use of that or the appropriate use of that or whatever. And so these, the fact that these methods are used ad hoc is not inherently bad or like it, you sh it's preferable to the alternative, but it's also not, it means that you're not getting the most bang for the buck. There's a way of doing, there's something called like day after analysis which is basically taking a series of tabletop exercises around the same thematic question of some strategic decision or consequence or event, and then looking at what happens and stepping stakeholders through what happens in the aftermath of that event or decision, but doing it in the form of a series of TTXs or tabletop exercises that kind of allows you to um, treat it like controlled case studies, you know, or, you know, virtual or counterfactual controlled case studies, but it's like pinpointing the decision of consequence. And then it's red teaming that entire, what happens after space, you know, and it's a way of ensuring that no matter what happens, you're not surprised. And you can, that, that seems like the kind of thing that it was screaming out to be done on the Afghanistan withdrawal. There's no evidence publicly that they did that, right? I'm sure people thought about consequences or analyzed consequences, but how did they analyze the consequences? In what way? And so people weigh in on the questions that matter all the time, but how they weigh in and how they reach their judgments matters too, you know? You know, I know you are, like me, quite keen on a complex systems networks view of things. Uh, could a networks perspective have helped us understand Afghanistan better? And you know what I'm thinking is as a network of networks based, for example, based on tribal and economic linkages between key actors, their relations with the US and the Ghani government, et cetera, et cetera. Such tools do you think would have value for, for the kind of conflict the United States has found itself uh, in the middle of in the recent past? Yeah, I mean, maybe not not at the top level, or not in the at the end of the day, or in the final analysis. Network analysis is kind of like a middle range tool for middle range type problems in my mind, uh, or at least in the trade the statecraft space. So, like, network analysis can be a useful way of detecting patterns whose weaknesses you can then exploit. So maybe it helps you target insurgents or uh, which, I, in fact, I know it's been used that way in Afghanistan, but maybe it also helps you target or like prioritize resources. So maybe you could have used network analysis in an anti-corruption initiative, right, which I'm not so sure that it did. And so the tool can be help become a means to an end. But unless those means 
are being addressed to the largest challenge in Afghanistan, which to my mind was always kleptocracy. It was always national cohesion. Then you're chasing waterfalls. Like it's never going to be enough. And you can't expect middle range solutions to solve like big meta type problems. And we know in the past there has been considerable research on the use of big data. Uh, granular data sets obtained records of significant activity both in Iraq and Afghanistan. So just to give one example for our uh, listeners, in Afghanistan, you have had DARPA fund uh, Nexus 7, which was a project that sought to leverage multiple data streams to obtain a better understanding of what was going on in terms of future Afghan stability. What is the future of such methods? Are you bullish about them? I'm hoping I have conversations with some of my more quantitatively inclined friends about this sometimes and like they turn into heated debates often. There's an inherent limitation to the value of any kind of quantitative or modeling based methods insofar as policymakers tend to be have low literacy in these 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 techniques, which means that the outputs have to be taken on pure faith, which is dangerous. or they have to be rejected, which is would be unfortunate because it's like you're generating analytically based insights. Why wouldn't you want to take advantage of that? You know. So in an ideal world, I would say that we should be using you know agent based modeling and uh, you know regression analysis and lots of other methods to triangulate whatever our object of interest is. Okay. So get the maximum insights in the on the ethos that like all data is useful. And we want to come at something with as many methods as possible to sort of have the greatest confidence that the uh, conclusion we're reaching is is sound. Um, but that requires a high level of literacy, which is lacking. And one of my other concerns that I've noticed is that people who do have high literacy in these methods do end up using them as like heuristic shortcuts for thinking. They outsource their own judgments about what to do in the policy world to what the methods tell us. And so like there's a problem of low literacy and there's a problem of high literacy creating faith that the numbers are right, you know, and like we got to steer a kind of middle middle range there. So uh, I wouldn't say I'm bullish, but I would hope that we don't lose numbers in the process of focusing always on context, you know. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Van. Folks, that was Dr. Van Jackson joining me as our guest in the inaugural episode of Future Tense, Diplomat Risk Intelligence's fortnightly podcast on international security and global trends. Visit dri.thediplomat.com to know more about DRI offerings and services. And stay tuned for coming episodes where we once again deep dive into questions that matter with experts who know.